Hello, and welcome to Neurotives, the podcast where each episode we examine how neuroscience is depicted in a work of fiction, and we talk about the real-world science behind it. I'm Stephen Ho, and with me is Nick Halper, as always. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Nick. So this week, we'll be deviating from our usual formula, you get two for the price of one this week. (laughs) We'll be talking about Ghost in the Shell, the 1995 anime movie, and Ghost in the Shell, the 2017 live-action remake of the 1995 anime movie Ghost in the Shell. Although I think remake would probably be overstating it, right? Yeah, I think it's a little bit more of an inspiration, I think, for the live action one. Given the breadth of interpretations there are in the Ghost in the Shell franchise and the various adaptations of the Ghost in the Shell franchise, I mean, I think that's perfectly okay. Yeah, I think it's great. And it made this, I think fun like it was really fun to watch these actually back to back Uh, i love experiences like that where you get to like look at these two kind of similar things and dissect them and compare and contrast them on their different parts so i'm looking forward to that part of this episode too oh yeah definitely and it's kind of funny because i actually did not realize until i looked it up afterwards just how like many different spin-offs and everything there were of the ghost in the shell franchise a year ago, I had seen like a CG like animation pop up in my Netflix feed feed called Ghost in the Shell SAC 2045. And I didn't really think much of it, it was, but Netflix was like, hey, here it is. And so after I watched Ghost in the Shell 1995 and Ghost in the Shell 2017, I was like curious. I was like, okay, let's see what this is. Is this like a di- continuation of one of them? And within a minute, the first thing I was thinking was, I don't know what movie this TV series is a follow-up to because it's not either of the movies that I just watched. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, but then I looked it up and uh, apparently it is a continuation of a separate, like, quote-unquote continuity spinoff of Ghost in the Shell called, and that SAC stands for Standalone Complex, but whatever, we won't get into it. Um, yeah, we were a bit more purist here. The two movies. Yeah. So let's start with the original anime. So Ghost in the Shell was released in 1995, directed by Mamoru Oshii. It's an adaptation of a manga by Masamune Shiro. And we start off with the opening text card. I think the text card says something like, computerization has not yet wiped out nations and ethnic groups. I think the idea is that like it's supposed to like make the world smaller, right? Or something like that. But like there's still divisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those political divisions are kind of form the centerpiece for why the events in the movie happen. Yeah, it, it is a movie of political intrigue in contrast, I think, to the live action, which we'll get to. Yep. And then the title card tells us that the year is 2029. So, you know, just in a short eight years. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm looking forward to my uh, cybernetic upgrades <laughs> yeah i mean i'm not looking forward to the apparently apocalypse that happens all around that city but trade-offs man she she monologues about it later <laughs> it's worth it i promise <laughs> where this movie is set is a non-specific place called newport city which is although it's very clearly meant to be in japan i would think um 
visually, it's very much based on seemingly like a coastal Asian city like Shanghai or Hong Kong, I think. And so there's a computer rasterized graphic of a map. And then we transition to our main character, Major Motoko Kusanagi. We will refer to her as the major or major through probably both movies, (laughs) truthfully. (laughs) Yep, that's one thing that sticks. And so this is probably one of the more iconic sequences in the anime. So she's sitting on top of a skyscraper. She's got four cables plugged into percutaneous connectors in the back of her neck. And I'm not clear on what these four cables are meant to be. I think they're meant to plug into like the building system. And that's how she's like monitoring the building. Yeah, or it's, I agree with that. Or it could generally just be connection to the internet, which... (laughs) I know that's like kind of odd to say because there's other places where they show her communicating wirelessly, but there are also several scenes in the movie where she has to be like connected to access high bandwidth internet or something. Like she gets a (laughs) lot more information when she like plugs into things. Um, But yeah, you're exactly right. It seems like she's plugged into the building or something somehow because she's monitoring activity inside the building. For me, just the idea that they're percutaneous connectors and there's four of them in the back and they're just like being very casual about plugging things in and out. That just gives me the willies, man. Yeah. And <laughs> and she basically just like rips them out like the like bundle pulls them out. I mean, th- it's kind of funny because it's like first thing I thought of when I saw this was like, are these connectors keyed? Like what happens <laughs> if you plug in like the wrong one into the wrong four pin slot? But she's fine. Yeah, dude. Usability. <laughs> yeah. Usability concerns. <laughs> Apparently not. Um, I, I like a line that she she gives here, though, because it, it tells you a little bit of maybe about how she interprets the signals from the building or like uh, kind of what access people have to each other because there's a comment that there's a lot of noise in her brain today. Yes. And her response is, oh yeah, maybe it's a loose wire. Right. Okay. So this is where, did you watch the subtitle version or? Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. So then we're, we're on the same page here because I don't speak Japanese. Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a sense of whether that's an offhand banter or sarcastic remark or whether like we're supposed to take that at face value. Oh, I see. So that's actually more just like a turn of phrase. Kind of like when we say, oh, I got my wires crossed or something. Right. We're obviously not suggesting we're actually cyborgs, but. Yeah. Like, I mean, it could be an idiomatic thing or whether she's just being like a smart ass, you know? Mm-hmm. And because again, because I can't tell the tone because I don't speak Japanese. I, I'm actually not sure. Yeah. Now I've. I didn't even think about that. And I just, I'm going to take a step back and just say, we just know that she, she can connect to the internet through her (laughs) ports. That's all I know. Yep. After this, she disconnects the cables. Like you said, she just kind of like grabs them, yanks them, takes off her jacket to reveal a skin tight white bodysuit. She racks around in her gun. And okay. I don't know if you notice this as well, but the anime movie spent a lot of time and a lot of focus visually on the mechanics of guns and moving parts of guns. Oh, yeah. The guns were like a sub theme <laughs> to the anime <laughs> movie. And the, well, it was kind of fun, actually, because I feel like the guns had like these very satisfying sounds. Like Major like spends a good chunk of the movie just like racking rounds and like cleaning guns and like filling clips and like all sorts of stuff. And the whole thing is filled with these like great sounds. Mm -hmm. Glad to hear we're on the same page there. (laughs) I agree. I think it's a great amount of detail. And again, she racks around in her gun and then does a bungee jump off of the tower. A police raid interrupts the meeting and the people having the meeting, like they pull diplomatic immunity to like get the police off them. But unfortunately they have not uh, accounted for the major because the leader of the meeting 
is shot through the head twice and then he explodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the animated version is somehow significantly more violent than the live action version. I don't know what rounds they're using <laughs> in these guns, but people frequently explode in this film, which is <laughs> gruesome. Yeah, it is. I mean, well, I mean, it's not like people are exploding all the time, but like when they do, it is it's it's pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah, so like he explodes, everyone's like what the hell's going on? They all look out the window and they see the the major mid-fall and then and as she passes over the window, she then cloaks much to the shock of everyone there and then we jump into the opening title sequence which um i think really sets the tone for the entire movie energy wise yeah i think the i mean i'll let you come on other parts of the sequence but i think there's a lot of like kind of like computer imagery and like brain scan stuff and the music that's laid over the title sequence i think sets the like vibe for the whole movie both these movies both the animated one um, and the live action one are pretty i'd say like relatively like artsy they have this kind of like it's like these these moments of like quiet contemplation mixed in with this fast-paced cybernetic future and it like alternates between these two modes and i think the title sequence does that well that's actually something i want to comment on when we get to the live action in that i think visually it's actually quite a bit tonally inconsistent in the live action movie from like the way the sound settings and the script establishes um a more somber somber tone but We'll get to that in a moment <laughs> um, after we finish up the anime. But um, yeah, I, it's I mean, the music here is basically like this singing and chanting over like a, a rhythmic drum beat. And it's not you think of something like The Matrix, where it's fast driving synth mm-hmm. for a lot of the movie. And this is very somber, almost like elegiac almost. Right, right. But it's it's juxtaposed to the visuals of like this you know, there's like fast moving code, like code and like this, I don't know. I think there's something about the technology aspect that feels kind of like somewhat raw and aggressive compared to that, like that music and the sound in the movie. Yeah. I mean, the fact that like that, that the singing sounds almost, it almost sounds tribal in some way. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. So it's, a, it is a very interesting contrast. So we then jump into the debriefing of what happened. And basically the idea is that the police were there on behalf of Section 6, which is some (laughs) branch of the government. The major works for Section 9, which is, I I don't know. So far as I can tell, it's like this black ops special forces unit. And I think they explicitly say they're there to do like the dirty work, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they were there on the request of the foreign ministry to resolve the situation lethally. And even though I've watched this movie twice, I still don't quite understand fully how that opening pre-title sequence actually like relates to the rest of the plot. Um, Like I got enough out of it to understand that like it is in some way, but I I, I don't fully understand it. And I actually don't think it matters truthfully. Oh, thank God. I thought it was just me. And I'm like, man, Steven's going to get this and come in here (laughs) knowing like whatever all these political associations are and like why that person needed to be shot. (laughs) I never got it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't understand it either. So cool. We we can be smooth brained uh, together here. (laughs) The resolution of this whole situation though, is that the foreign minister's interpreter has had her brain hacked by someone called the puppet master. And she is there in section nine, section nine is investigating. Uh, and another thing about this movie, it's really exposition dump heavy, like in in conversations. Mm-hmm. 
there's just like these blocks of just like, this is the deal. This is the world. This is what's happening. You're just like, whoa. Yeah. If you look down at your phone for like one second, you're just like, what the fuck? What the, what is going on? Yeah. 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 I had that same problem. I had to rewind like three times. I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't <laughs> multitask during this movie. Yep. <laughs> the, the, so I have some questions about this minister's interpreter scene. So in this scene, like they, they mentioned that the minister's interpreter was, her brain was hacked through right. a data line, whatever that means. And basically what we see in the scene is like this, I guess like robot shell laying back on the table and it has like uh, acupuncture needles in its face. And her brain is like out on a little like cart, basically connected to a bunch of cables that are like, I guess, analyzing it, kind of like looking at the hack and like looking at what happened. It, the brain looked organic. So is this, is the minister's interpreter like a robotic shell with an organic brain in it? Um, That's a good question. The way I kind of interpreted it was that that thing you're referring to the brain on the cart. I was just assuming that's just like their recording system or whatever. Okay. So it's just like some sort of cybernetic brain. Yeah. And then all those cables are just like hooked up into her as a person, but I think your initial interpretation is just as valid uh, in that the idea that they could take out a brain and then do that. I think these are both fine. <laughs> Great. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, I, I'm gonna, that's one thing I'm going to assume is uh, elaborated on the manga or something. Cause... Yeah. The, the, I, I think my, my argument for it being an organic brain is that we're also immediately shown like a, a scan of the brain, mm -hmm. which is like very MRI-like. Like it shows like the, the slice. Right thing uh moving through it uh at the same time they also show all these little like golden dots like spreading through the brain i guess indicating the the hacking or the investigation or something but i i don't know why you would mri a uh a circuit well they also have like a, a like a seemingly throwaway piece of dialogue where they're like the eeg is stable right as well oh, yeah oh. so it feels odd to have the eeg if the brain's just like right there in some ways i don't know true Okay, we don't know. <laughs> In any case, this hack is a problem because reasons. Um, and section nine is tracing the hack source. There's a big, dense, detail-oriented exposition dump as Major and another member of section nine, Togusa, are just driving to the source of the hack as it's being traced. Um, I actually really like the, this exposition dump here because, first of all, like we mentioned, the major basically spends this entire, as she's talking, she's, I mean, she's talking, but with her hands, she's just like fiddling with her weapons, racking rounds, reloading them, checking them, cleaning it, whatever. And then she tells Togusa, or rather, I think Togusa asks, um, why am I on this team? I'm nothing special, right? Oh, yeah. This is a good line. And then Major tells him, you know, you're valuable to the team because you're almost fully human with few cybernetics, not despite it. Because he's human, he brings a different perspective than everyone who is heavily cybernetically enhanced. Yeah. And she gives a specific quote or a quotable line that overspecializing breeds in weakness. Yeah, in machine learning, we call that overfitting. Mm -hmm. So... And another detail that I really, really like from this is that the major is giving Togusa crap because he prefers to use like an old school double action revolver as his service weapon instead of like, you know, a modern automatic weapon or a semi-automatic weapon. But I think this parallels like his old school pure humanity versus like enhancement. Yeah, exactly. And it touches back on our gun theme because they t <laughs> all talk about the types of weapons they use. 
throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah. And then the gun, the fact that it's a revolver and I don't, is semi-important later. Like It's highlighted at least. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, the hack signal is traced back to a garbage man who is setting the hacks at various sites. And uh, what this garbage man thinks is that he's placing surveillance hacks on his estranged wife who he thinks is cheating on him. Which, by the way, is like a creepy implication, I guess, that like they they call it a ghost hack, right? Suggesting that he's hacking her and she doesn't know it and he can see what she thinks. And he's trying to do this to like catch her in her lies. And thinking about that and like the havoc it would play on interpersonal relationships is disturbing. Oh, yeah, that is supremely messed up. (laughs) I think the idea is that ghost hacking is one of the it's like in Harry Potter, an unforgivable curse, right? That's why Mm -hmm. they have section nine on the puppet master who is doing these ghost hacks. Yeah, exactly. And this guy like this guy says he's doing this and his other trash co-pilot is like, I don't want to be involved in your like illegal doings. You can do them or whatever, but don't tell me about it. So they figure out that this is being done through the garbage truck driver. Um, The garbage truck driver is tipped off when he figures out he's being tailed. He goes to book it to warn the hacker who is, I think, following the garbage truck to like basically reconfigure the hack or something. So he goes to warn him and then that hacker immediately opens fire on the van carrying Togusa and the major and the van explodes violently and the hacker, he cloaks and then he flees. We didn't introduce Bato earlier, but Bato is awesome. He is a Section 9 officer with cybernetically enhanced eyes. They're basically like scopes instead of actual eyes. They're pretty cool. Oh, yeah. And so Bato chases the hacker and engages in a firefight with the hacker in a busy market. You explicitly see like bystanders getting shot. It's kind of messed up. Yeah, I mean, like, they, they open, like, automatic fire in, like, a crowded city market. Yep. And, like, a bunch of people die, or at least get shot. But it also emphasizes a really fun, like, typical TV trope, which is, like, the destroying of fruit stands in car chases. <laughs> because they destroy a bunch of fruit stands. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in addition to many innocent bystanders, they also tip over fruit stands. Were there any cabbages in there? I, I think one of the boats that gets tipped is a cabbage boat. <laughs> oh, yes. I love it. <laughs> okay, so through all of that, the hacker flees through an alley to an open area and loses Bato. Unbeknownst to him, he is being followed by a cloaked major who is following him along the rooftops. So he ends up in this open area in ankle-deep water, and he basically... I think he sees, like, major's footsteps in the water, right? yeah. That's what caused him to start shooting randomly. Mm-hmm. And then he like runs out of ammo and then she just like beats the crap out of him. But yeah, this scene is great. I mean, this scene is the main fight of this invisibility fight is basically remade shot for shot in the um, live action one. I kind of prefer it in the anime one because it's, it's a lot more stylized and like a mm-hmm. lot more visceral. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think the I mean, a lot of the kind of core visual scenes, even though Obviously, the live action one is, you know, modern and flashy. I think the the style of them in the anime is done better. And this one is no exception. Okay, so it just occurred to me, we haven't actually talked about the deal with the major. Uh, it, what, what deal? Like who she is. Like what she is, for that matter. No, we haven't. Uh, I guess I was trying to allude to this a little bit when we talked about the interpreter. Because the major is seen as, or kind of like... I don't know if I'm retaking bias from the live action, which I watched first, where mm-hmm. like the major is like it's emphasized over and over that the major is like a one of a kind. 
Right. Whereas like in this movie, it's not as obvious that that's the case. I actually don't think it is the case. I don't, I don't think it is either. Cause the deal with the major is that her body is fully cybernetic. It's basically like she has basically had her brain completely transplanted into a cybernetic body to be a more effective operative for section nine. And this is just who she is. And she's more or less fine with it. Now that's very different from the live action movie, which we'll get to later. So yeah, like brain in a body. It's a classic brain in a vat idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's that whole concept or trope just like in movie form and extended. (laughs) Okay. So in terms of like how feasible this is, do you think in eight years we're going to get there? (laughs) I I know people who would like us to, uh, but no, I don't, I do not think we will. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's just so many, um, even before getting into the neuroscience aspect of basically being able to convey the full sensations of everything about having a body into your brain, even just like medically, there's problems with like keeping a brain alive yeah yeah exactly like what are your nutrients like there's there's a concept that shows up in the live action one that is oddly handled differently in the anime which is like breathing like do you need to like breathe how do you get like oxygen to the brain how do you give it nutrients now i agree with your point like the whole like neuroscience mechanics of like how do you get how do you make all those connections like we're barely making neuroprosthetics to control like subcomponents right like an arm or a cochlear implant for an ear. But at the same time, in some ways, your problem does become simpler if you only choose to engage in the brain through kind of like peripheral nerves. Suddenly, you're not accessing like deep areas of the brain. Your primary interactions are like sensory IO, right? And so it's like, maybe you simplify your neuroprosthetics problem a little bit if you just go whole brain, whole body separation. Hmm. (laughs) it's a hot take okay (laughs) but like trying to interact with like higher orders of cognition and stuff in the brain is really hard yes but interacting like a cochlear implant is like the concept is relatively simple like we're like hitting these peripheral nerves to stimulate these different frequencies boom ear canal hair cells etc the idea there becomes simpler like the the act of interacting with the brain is less complicated now you have tons of nerves that are coming in and out of the brain. And so like your total interface is I think probably really hard to construct, but the type of information you need to interpret in the interface, I think is simpler. Okay. I mean, it's basically just like you're stacking all of those inter individual simpler systems, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, there's almost like emergent concept of like, Oh, instead of trying to do one really smart thing on interacting with the brain at some high order cognition level, I'm just going to do a bunch of dumb things and it's going to give me, um, a better outcome or like i kind of think about it with like visual prosthetics right if you can it's way easier to d- sit there and do retinal stimulation because that way you're, you're you just have that physical map you're like oh if i stimulate here they're going to see it in their visual eye field at that exact place and there you know that the brain's going to reflect it that way and like all is good but as soon as you're stimulating a visual cortex it's like oh when i stimulate fusiform facial gyrus like people's face shapes change and you get these like really complex effects. So, you know, maybe the idea of a cybernetic bodysuit is actually ahead of really strong, you know, like mental interaction and mental links and stuff like that. Hmm. I have not thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I still think it's really far away. 
<laughs> to clarify. <laughs> okay, so we have the major. She's basically a cyborg super soldier, is the idea. So so we covered that, although <laughs> a little belatedly. Um, <laughs> I just got caught up in this, uh, this movie. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So that is the major, and that is the neuroscience of it. Her brain has been placed into a cybernetic body. And we don't really have much else to say about that. <laughs> No, I, the, the other one other comment I'll make with this, like a little comparison here between the um, anime and the live action, the major's body in this one seems to maybe have some like, it's like clearly a robotic skeleton, but it kind of seems to maybe have some like slightly more organic components in it than the live action. Not really a plot point or really that useful to talk about, but uh, there are some differences in how they interpreted the robot body. During the opening title sequence, as they're showing the bare frame of it, the skeleton is all like metal and everything, but there are what are recognizably muscles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I said, we don't have much else to say about this because I can't point to a paper and be like, this is a concept for how we do Ghost in the Shell. Like, no, no, (laughs) we're not there yet. I'm sorry, people. (laughs) But this movie does rule, so we're happy to continue talking about it. So it turns out that the hacker has been hacked himself. He's been ghost hacked and he has no useful information to offer, nor does the garbage man who plot twist, uh, he has no wife and he has no child. Those are false memories that have been implanted into him because of a ghost hack. There's this interesting scene where they're in like an interrogation cube and they show him a picture of himself. And he's like, oh, isn't my family lovely? <laughs> or something like that. And they're like, oh, man, this guy. <laughs> I, I like that scene because um, in the garbage, like when, when the garbage truck drivers were together, um, he tries to like lean over and show the guy a picture of his wife that he's ghost hacking. He's like, look at her. She's beautiful or whatever. And the guy, the other garbage truck guy is like, no, I don't want to see your family, man. Like he's like pushes the picture away. And then this scene, we find out that picture was just a picture of himself, like a selfie. That he took. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. So the major is deeply affected by the idea that like this garbage man is so immersed and taken by this like simulated and implanted life that the puppet master placed into him. I think similarly to when we talked about Pacific Rim, the idea of, I guess Pacific Rim isn't so much as like implanting memories, but like sharing memories, like those, like memories as a transportable thing, that's that's a difficult idea to kind of understand in the context of what we know about neuroscience right now. Yeah, yeah. Transplanting memories, it, we have only the most like basic suggestions of what that might like look like or how it would work. I mean, I, I think like the best we can do is basically to like mess with recall, like and like um, mess with it enough to like make people think they're remembering something in a way that isn't they aren't actually right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's far easier to make people forget stuff <laughs> or like mess with the things they do remember um, than trying to make them remember something that didn't happen. The major being very upset at this, she goes scuba diving as her relaxation activity and. It's in a conversation with her and Bato, because uh, Bato is tagging along. It's revealed that this is actually like fairly risky because um, her cybernetic body is apparently super heavy, which makes sense. She's like apparently like 500 pounds of metal. Uh, and that'll be important a little bit later. The fact that cybernetically enhanced people are heavy. And so basically the gist of it is that she gets off on the risk. Yeah. Um, it helps her feel alive. And so Bato and the Major talk philosophy, technology, and the meaning of extremely cybernetically enhanced life over beer. Yeah. 
Major's argument here is that cybernetics and technology are always worth the trade-off. <laughs> I mean, she goes on this whole like existential monologue that like, you know, she is the sum of her parts and these cybernetic parts are what adds to her. But the thing that is truly her own is her ghost, which is, I don't think we've actually talked about what the what a ghost is and to be fair the movie has not either (laughs) yeah okay that is fair but we can basically interpret that the ghost is like somebody's like sense of self located in their brain yeah basically your consciousness or you know if you ascribe to to such an idea your soul Mm -hmm. yeah the live action movie just like right in like the first three minutes like this is a ghost this is what it is bam (laughs) like (laughs) all the anime is just like just like just talks about ghosts like you know completely casually and never explains it as if you know what it is anyways at some point while she's on this like existential monologue where the conclusion of it is that she actually feels like limited right like she feels like she's limited by who she is and what she is yeah and she wants to feel free as she says and then she hears a weird disembodied voice in the back of her head telling her your life is a dim image in a mirror and it's Odd because it's so tonally different from like the rest of this movie. Uh, and then we jump into like a three minute interlude. And I, I did check. It's like three minutes um, of just like establishing shots of like just scenes in the city over the opening title music. It, it's basically an intermission. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. I mean, it, it sets the mood and the energy for the rest of the movie. After the intermission ends, we cut to a nude woman out on a freeway. Do we see this woman being built or is it just does it just cut straight to the woman out on the freeway? I don't remember. I think it's straight straight to the woman out on the freeway. Okay. Because it happens right at the end. It basically is the kind of like transition out of that intermission. Oh, okay. Scene. Right. And the intermission scene does not show any shots of factories building nude women. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's another thing about the anime versus the live action movie. Um, there's a lot more nudity in, in the anime movie. It's not like, you know, there's like boobs everywhere, but it's just like, they're there. They're there. They are not like uh, nippleless boobs like we see in the live action movie. Okay, so I actually want to talk about that for a second. You know that line in Game of Thrones where like, I, I don't remember where it is, but some person's like, it's about as useful as nipples on armor. Like, is there actually a reason for robots to have nipples? Okay, this this was a question that just came. Like, yeah, I was going to ask this at some point. Why make a robot gendered at all? Like, all of these uh, external genitalia things or, like, whatever sexual dimorphism stuff is, like, pointless. <laughs> so it's like, what's the... What I would say is that... If infiltration is in their mission parameters, then maybe they need to be able to mimic naturalistic behavior. Okay, sure. And as far as nipples go, I'm going to assume that breastfeeding is not one of those. So I still don't understand the point of nipples on robots. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe, I mean, for Major, maybe it's like the brain is like missing some sort of uh, input. (laughs) Like sensory, I don't know. I can't explain it. But in any case, so this nude woman is out on the freeway and she gets hit by a truck. We cut to this nude woman who is now basically like a dismembered robotic body in section nine. And she is basically similar to the major. In fact, I think um, they say that it's literally the same company that manufactured the major's body, right? Yeah. In fact, they say it's the same company that manufactures basically everybody's cybernetic implants in section nine. And 
this is interesting to me. So this company, what are they called in the um, Megatech? Megatech, yeah. So in the live action, you get Honka Robotics, and the relationship between this big robotics company and the police divisions or political divisions are different between the two movies, kind of. Yes, the uh, the company is much more present in the live action movie. Yeah. The body is brought to Section 9, and Major insists on diving into the cybernetic doll herself, because what they see in their investigation is that there is activity that is very similar to as if there were a ghost in that body. Mm -hmm. But there is no ghost in that body. Right. They think, or not. They, like, argue with each other about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, like, that's the entire central question of the movie, right? So, um... (laughs) But we're not quite there yet. (laughs) At this point, we think there's no ghost in it. Right. She wants to dive into the cybernetic doll because she's disturbed by the idea that, like, this could look like it has a ghost, even though there is no ghost, because parallels anybody. (laughs) (laughs) And so she starts kind of questioning the authenticity of her humanity. Right. In some ways. I think the one quote I really like from here is, maybe I died a long time ago and somebody took my brain and stuck it in this body which is the plot of the live action movie. (laughs) Yeah, she basically like sits there and speculates. She's like, it's not possible for me to know if somebody can ghost hack me and change my memories. And yeah, that's the whole thing. Now we're like diving into philosophy more so than neuroscience at this point. But it's the classic, like that dreamer, the butterfly dreamer, right? Am I dreaming of the butterfly and woke up? Or was I, or am I now asleep and dreaming and a butterfly? What is this again? <laughs> I don't know. It's a thing. Basically, is real life when I'm dreaming yeah. or, or like when I'm asleep or when I'm not? Yeah, that thing. Because it's not possible to know. I swear there's a butterfly dream. Whatever. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Butterfly dreams. There's one line that they throw out here. I, I keep getting caught up in like who is cybernetic and who's not. But for this cyborg, which they mention is was self-assembled, by the way, which I think you'll touch on in a second. For the cyborg that got hit by the car, they mentioned that this this brain scan that they do shows a, a simulated ghost line that occurs when a real ghost is copied. Does this imply that some of the way that these, like, autonomous robots are made is by, like, copying brains? I, I guess I just don't get that line, like, what the implications of it are. It, it seems to point at the fact that AI exists, but we quickly, like... That is not a well-known fact, as we see soon. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, it could be like the idea of like engrams, right? Where somebody's consciousness is like exists as a data unit. Maybe that's what they mean. But yeah. the idea of downloading consciousness is well-established in the world of this movie, right? So maybe that's what they mean. And like you can create kind of hollow engram copies when they do download. I don't know. Yeah. So as all this is going on, and I'm glad you mentioned that the body self-assembles because that'll be important in a moment. So officials from a rival government agency, Section 6, have come to claim the doll. They have authorization from the foreign minister or whatever. But more importantly, they specifically want the program in the doll. What they claim is that the ghost in the body is the puppet master, who is the person who has been perpetrating all these hacks that Section 9 has been after. So they claim that they basically made a trap so that the puppet master would cause this body to self-assemble, download itself or himself into the body. And then now that it's confined to the body, they can now deal with the puppet master. Now, at that point, the body disagrees. It's so crazy. 
<laughs> this is this is where the movie gets real. Oh yeah. The body just straight up activates and the puppet master is like, nah, dude, that's not what the deal is. Like the lights flicker and the doll starts talking. And he's just like, No, I am a sentient life form. I was created as a result of something called Project 2501, and then goes on a metaphysical monologue about synthetic life being like, you know, the logical conclusion of this increasingly computerized life. And then in something relatively surprisingly mundane, he asks for political asylum from Section 9. <laughs> it's a good speech, though. I, I found myself sitting there like listening to this like transfixed. He was talking about how like DNA is just a program to preserve itself and that it is a biological memory system for humans. And like basically the sea of information and computation like is the primordial soup that like he formed out of. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. But yeah, it ends with this like very basic like human right, like (laughs) treat me like a person stuff. Yeah, I mean, basically, he's just making a case for the idea that, look, you might have created me, but like, I have, I am beyond what the parameters of what you thought I am now. I am self-aware and sentient. So everybody's just like, uh, what? <laughs> and so while all this has been going on, Togusa is able to figure out that the Section 6 operatives have snuck cloaked operatives in with them. And he's able to figure this out because... Their car was too heavy for just two people. And then he also noticed that the elevator door was like open just three seconds too long. So he's like, holy crap, they have cloaked operatives. That's like treason or something, right? Mm-hmm. The chief of Section 9, who is called Chief Aramaki, he doesn't have too many lines here, but like, he's pretty cool. He's ready to sign over the body. He's like, yeah, all your paperwork's in order. Go ahead. I just want to know what's going on, dude. Um, but then once the body starts talking, he starts being like, whoa, 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 whoa we need to get down to the bottom of this. And that's when like the cloaked operatives just like start blowing stuff up. They blow stuff up, they grab the body, but because Togusa figured out what the deal was beforehand, he's able to tag them with a tracker shot through his revolver. (laughs) (laughs) So we have payoff for that little line of uh, that little line there. And then the officers of section nine figure out what the deal is that section six basically created the puppet master as a hacking tool but lost control of it uh, and are now trying to do damage control. They are able to track the the car that's carrying the body through the city. The Section 6 attempts to do a bait and switch, but it fails. I think um, the uh, decoy car is stopped at a road stop and, oh man, the poor driver here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they got stopped by like a spike strip and then like he's just like, oh no, and then he just explodes. (laughs) He's like shot through like by like one bullet through and then he just he, he literally just explodes. <laughs> yeah. There's blood and a spine and And not much else. <laughs> no. It's very gruesome. So the major is able to chase the section six operatives carrying the puppet master to an abandoned part of the city. Again, there's great scenes as she's riding in the helicopter. She's still just like racking her guns, checking her ammo and everything. She drops into where the car carrying the body has escaped to. And then we have the iconic spider tank fight. And this is the other thing that if you know anything from Ghost in the Shell, you know the tower fall and you know the spider tank fight. Or at least for me, that's how it was. Right. It, it's a pretty epic battle scene. Yeah. And I mean, and when we say epic, we don't even mean that there's like stirring, rousing orchestral music. It's like actually very like 
again, it's very like the music is very somber. It's almost like a requiem or a dirge almost. Um, and it's contrasted by like the sound of the automatic weapons fire of and explosions of everything and her footsteps. The sound design here is fantastic. Oh, yeah. It, the the contrast of like the mechanical sounds of the gunfire and just like how persistent it is from the spider tank versus her like burst fire from her like little gorilla tactics against the spider tank. It's yeah, it's awesome. Really good sounds. I mean, I knew that like the Wachowskis took a lot of inspiration for the Matrix from Ghost in the Shell thematically and otherwise. But in terms of also just setting up a scene and like their action choreography, like there is so much of this spider tank fight in the lobby shootout fight of the Matrix. Mm -hmm. So we won't go beat by beat through the fight. Just trust us. Please watch this fight. It's awesome. And the animation is fantastic. But at some point, the major basically cloaks runs up to the tank and then tries to like rip the spider tank open and (laughs) this does not work out well for her in this movie yeah i mean she does succeed does she i guess i don't think she does does she she disables the tank somehow not in the not in the anime no no she just like shatters and tears her body frame and then she's lying on the ground the tank moves that little arm and then grabs her head. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. She fails. Somebody else comes in to save the day. Yep. Bato comes in with an anti-tank weapon and then makes the save and disables the tank with his heavy weaponry. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite part of this, and, and I say favorite, even though it's awful, is that the, like, okay, so when... The Major's uh, body like shatters and tears. That's kind of another like iconic frame from this movie. Mm -hmm. The closed caption description of that sound. (laughs) 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 The closed caption uh, description of that sound is moist stretching (laughs) and moist tearing. (laughs) I mean, they're not wrong. (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) It's... Oh, it's so awful. Anyways, so... <laughs> so Bato shows up and makes a save, and we'll talk about how that scene plays out in the live-action movie. Unfortunately, Section 6 operatives have also showed up to contain the situation. The Major demands Bato help her dive into the Puppet Master's body, which she does, and then we get the big reveal, where the Puppet Master reveals that he is indeed a Section 6 creation. He was... He's dubbed Project 2501 for industrial. It um, is an industrial espionage and intelligence manipulation program that gained self-awareness and sentience. And and kind of in a reprise of the speech before, the puppet master says that despite the fact that it's self-aware and sentient, it desires to experience life as humanity does. It desires to experience life as something that can reproduce and die and in pursuit of this goal, he wants to merge with the Major. He says he's been seeking her, and this is why we find out that he fled to Section 9. Because the Section 6 operatives were like, why did this guy go here? This is one of the reasons. Right. And so the idea is that the Major will bear the Puppet Master's code copies out onto the net, and the Puppet Master, that original copy, will die, thus being able to experience the full breadth of life. And then the Major gets to, like become something else, break past the limits that she was feeling beforehand. 
So as she agrees to this, I think there's like a visual of like an angel descending down onto her or something before Section 6 snipers destroy the Puppet Master's body. Before they're able to shoot the Major's body, Bato is able to like push her out of the way um, and he takes a bullet on his cybernetic arm instead. And so the Major then wakes up in Bato's apartment and it turns out Bato has had her brain placed onto a child's cybernetic body. One amusing note here is that this is the, sa- the same ending as a manga, but in the manga, Bato has the Major's head placed on the body of a male child. (laughs) (laughs) In any case, um, she reveals that she has indeed merged with the Puppet Master and now is neither the Major nor the Puppet Master, but just someone else. Something not quite either of them, but something beyond either of them. And so then Motoko slash the Puppet Master goes out to explore the world with the quote, the net is vast and infinite. A world of possibilities. Yep. So, but she talks about the net. You would think that the puppet master component of her would want to like experience not the net, I guess, in some ways, right? Like to go around and ride bikes and sit in the park or something. It's true, but the major component wants to experience the net. So, (laughs) and the major part is apparently the one that's in charge. So, okay. So that was the 1995 Ghost in the Shell. Now, I think we can probably talk a little bit about more about comparisons when we get into the meat of the live action movie, right? Um, even though we've already kind of touched on a few. Yeah, yeah, we can do a kind of move through the scenes a little faster and uh, look at the differences. Okay, so now let's move on to Ghost in the Shell 2017. As we mentioned, you know, numerous movies were influenced by Ghost in the Shell. Like, I think... For myself, Ghost in the Shell, the anime kind of suffers a little bit from, I think TV Tropes calls it the Seinfeld effect, where like the innovator of like something or something that originates tropes, when that thing isn't the first time you've seen them and you've seen the things it influenced, when you see the original, it doesn't seem quite as like mind blowing as you may be led to believe. Yeah, I I had this experience recently. I read um Dune, which originated a whole bunch, like it defined sci-fi as a genre in a lot of ways relatively mm-hmm. early and you know reading through it i'm like man this just feels so like a lot of these ideas have been overplayed like this has <laughs> already happened and it's like hard to remember that you know it originated a lot of them right and i mean i i still really enjoyed it and i think that um at the visual as a movie i think that there are like some of the mechanics as a movie don't really work quite as tightly as they probably should like the first half of the movie is kind of just like it's it doesn't really move the narrative along Mm -hmm. but as far as just like the philosophical questions and the complexity of it it is fantastic definitely now when we talk about ghost in the shell 2017 um now this is like people had been trying to get an adaptation of ghost in the shell for like years and then at some point it finally happened. It was released in 2017, um, directed by Rupert Sanders and um, starring Scarlett Johansson. So I don't want to harp on this too much. And I think you know exactly where I'm going with this, Nick. (laughs) So there was a whole thing about Scarlett Johansson being cast as the major who is Japanese. And, you know, we'll get into kind of how that plays itself out in the movie. But like I said, it's 
Scarlett Johansson is fine in this movie. Um, <laughs> I, I think Scarlett Johansson probably brought a lot of people to see this movie who wouldn't have seen it. Otherwise. Yes. But I want to push back against that idea that, you know, I think there has been this idea in Hollywood that people won't, would not pay to see somebody of Asian descent in a lead role. Mm-hmm. And that's gross. Yeah. And if you think that, go f*** yourself. Um, also, it's provably untrue. Just this past month, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, mm-hmm. starring a Chinese-Canadian actor who was not a huge established star. He was well-known, but his most prominent role was on a Canadian sitcom that became moderately popular through being distributed through Netflix. And it has made a lot of money in a global pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So suck on that, wads. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, like I said, it was a whole thing. I'm not going to harp on it anymore. We're just going to move on. We, we, we will touch on it once more later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Ghost in the Shell had a $110 million budget. It made $169 million, so a bit of a box office disappointment, which is probably why we don't have a Ghost in the Shell 2. <laughs> We also start off with an opening title card, much as we did with Ghost in the Shell 1995. Basically, it just says human enhancement is going further and further, and Hanka Robotics is looking to transplant a human brain into a fully synthetic body to achieve the logical endpoint of enhancement. That already kind of puts some contrast into Ghost in the Shell 1995, where that's just like a thing that they do. And like the idea of full body cybernetic enhancement is now like an experimental thing. Right. And that's what makes major who is you know we get introduced to her right at the beginning so special yep so our pre-title sequence instead of being the tower fall is a woman being rushed into a medical facility and then a woman's voice over an intercom says brain function normal cerebral salvage ready to proceed robotic skeleton prepared and waiting for brain insertion initiate project 2571 so Right there. They literally tell you what's going on. And then we jump into the title sequence, which is basically a CGI version of the anime title sequence with different music, right? Right. And it looks great. It's beautiful. It's really cool. No nipples. You get <laughs> no nipples. And during the brain, uh, unlike the in the anime one, which kind of just like jammed this, you know, brain in a hard plastic shell or a hard metal shell into the robotic body, we get to see the kind of like interface component here, which to us is interesting showing these they're basically like little like tendrils uh that come out of like the case that holds the brain the organic brain and like the robotic body Mm -hmm. and i don't know like these aren't explained obviously (laughs) um they're really cool looking uh, but they look like these kind of like semi-organic like a semi-organic interface somehow if we want to read too much into it aside from it being visually interesting maybe it's like just things being innervated from that brain organic brain into that robotic skeleton right yeah so maybe it's just like a bunch of neurotrophic factors and like actual nerve growth or something who knows (laughs) so this movie unlike the 1995 movie does not specify a year um but so we can't look forward to this in eight years but not that we could anyways but uh this movie's major is major mira killian and her deal is that she was the victim of a terrorist attack only her brain survived and they stuck her brain into the cybernetic body now, we have our establishing shot of this movie's Newport City, and 
But I do actually want to take a moment to talk about the visuals here because like the visuals for the live action movie are much more vibrant. They're much more bright. They're mm-hmm. they're very colorful and loud while the anime city is just it's really gritty and like mundane urban like, you know, it's much more muted visually. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I agree with all those points. It seems like there was some inspiration taken in this live action movie from other uh, kind of like cyberpunk aesthetics, which focus on these like, I think it emphasizes the like corporate nature of the movie. This might be maybe the best way to look at it. I don't know how like societal attitude has shifted since the (laughs) original or the anime here versus this live action movie. But I, I think the whole live action movie has this like undertone of like, corporations inserting themselves into people's lives and like having a big influence there and what you see in the live action movie is there's like advertisements everywhere and like a lot of the like color that you're talking about comes from like the lights and advertisements from corporations like showing off their wares and services oh yeah i mean it's like if you think that billboards on i-15 are bad and they are make no mistake that comment probably makes sense to like three people listening um <laughs> hey i-15 is a major highway in the u.s okay <laughs> yeah so um i mean if you think billboards are an eyesore like they have like advertisements that are literally like the size of a skyscraper it actually doesn't even make sense because how how could you see them unless you were like three miles away they're great for the camera panning shots yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and this is one of those shots. We get this establishing shot of this very cyberpunk aesthetic. Um, I think in terms of like the rest of this movie is relatively understated. So I think visually it's very tonally inconsistent uh, with the bright, vibrant colors, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you get these like scenes here and there, like the, you know, in this tower fall scene. I think it's like more played up and more flashy like Mm -hmm. all the glass breaking and like some of the like acrobatics and things like that. And so I think there's aspects of it that feel intense, but yeah, you're right. I mean, after these kind of in between these scenes, it is kind of just like plain building interiors or the gritty underground of like clubs and stuff like that. Yep. So like Nick mentioned, this leads directly into the tower fall scene. Um, And the tower fall scene here is actually much more, much more extended like instead of the major just dropping down making a guy explode then jump into title sequence there's a whole shootout scene it's a lot like the lobby scene in the matrix the deal is it's like a meeting between a foreign nations leader and a representative from honka robotics which is the corporation that nick mentioned they're interrupted when a bunch of armed men storm in a geisha robot hacks into the honka robotics rep and that's when the major bursts in kills all the intruders neutralizes the geisha bot but the geisha bot like pleads for its life yeah and that's weird <laughs> and major thinks it's weird too yep she's very upset at this um we're introduced to bato like straight off the bat because the rest of section nine storms in right after her and bato who i love bato in this movie oh yeah great character he actually still has his eyes we'll talk about what happens to him in a moment but he assures the major that you're not like the geisha bot and she's like whatever (laughs) i love this part she turns invisible and then shoulder bumps three swat team members on the way out (laughs) Oh, it's so unnecessary, but like, I I don't know why. I just love that. Like, so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> they they just had to make sure the invisibility cloak was used in this scene. Yeah. You know, for some reason. 
So in any case, we then jump to back to Section 9 and a debrief. We meet the rest of Section 9 very briefly. Um, there's a little conversation where it's revealed that Togusa in this movie, much like he is in the anime, is mostly human, although they don't have the they don't have the, you know, nice little details to kind of flesh that out. They just kind of gloss over it. And that is one thing I like much better about the um, anime. They do go into those like little complex details. Yeah, I, I think that is nice about the anime. I think one thing that shows up more in the live action, though, is that that is seen as more of a social stigma. Yeah, Major emphasizes that it's nice that he's, you know, more fully human and like this differences of opinion and diversity. But I think in the live action, at least to me, I picked up on more of these undertones of like stigma or prejudice or like some sort of kind of like negative opinion or that these groups held about each other. Yeah, I mean, like the idea is that Major is the first of her kind, but that's not to say enhancement isn't widespread. In fact, I think they emphasize more so how widespread enhancement is in this movie. Yeah, in fact, I mean, it's one of in the meeting scene that we saw that was kind of like one of the topics of discussion is the, the Honka Robotics guy is basically talking about like why people should be enhanced. And the guy on the other side of the table who is from the African Federation talks about how they have fully embraced embrace cyber enhancement and he talks about all the different things that they have and it sounds like there's basically a cyber enhancement for everything because coming back to section nine you have this guy who's basically like oh yeah i saved up and bought myself a cybernetic liver or whatever hell yeah i want one of those (laughs) yeah during this debrief it's revealed that aside from that honka robotics that was killed and hacked into that we saw there have been several other honka scientists that have been attacked and hacked, and that the perpetrator is someone named Kuze. So Major is much more forward about her existential doubts in this movie, or at least they show up earlier. Mm -hmm. Although the nature of her existential crisis is a bit, it's a bit different. Yeah, she's doubting different things. (laughs) In the anime, it's more about like, what it means to be human if people can be ghost hacked and have their like memories re- rearranged and things like that. And in in this one, it's it's different. It's much more about like she's doubting the authentic- authenticity of her memories. I think she says something just like these memories I have, they're all just so foggy. So in, in this operation, Major received a, a minor wound to her wrist that she's going into Honka to get repaired. And so so she meets with the head of the Honka program that developed her, Dr. Ule, and she reports to Dr. Ule, aside from this you know, minor wound that she received, she's also been experiencing glitches. Uh, and we saw this a few scenes ago where when she wakes up, she sees like a small cat in her apartment, even though she doesn't have a cat. She's reassured by the head of the Honka program that, oh, they're just glitches. Take your medicine. It'll be fine. One thing I want to talk about, uh, physically, the major looks very similar to the way she's represented in the uh, anime. Same haircut, same four percutaneous connectors in the back of the neck, except they're much more gross because now it's on the live person and it gives me the willies even more. (laughs) Okay, like... Is it just me or does like every like cyberpunk movie that has these kinds of things just like underplay how much of an infection risk any kind of percutaneous connector is? I I mean, yeah, they definitely underplay the infection risk because I feel like you don't see that kind of subtlety in the movies. But I also just feel like there's like these day to day things, right? Like somebody coming and jamming something in one of those, them getting like 
caught uh, full of stuff like maybe you're shampooing your hair and it gets soap residue and your percutaneous connectors like <laughs> it's gross yeah it's not great yeah okay so dr Ulay tells her yeah you know they're just glitches take your medicine whatever um and the way that the major takes her medicine is like by plugging stuff into those percutaneous connectors in the back yeah she basically like it's like this little liquid capsule that has wires in it <laughs> and like she like inserts it into the percutaneous connectors and like drains liquid into herself through them and then when she pulls it out the wires so like she just kind of like rips the wires out it's weird it's super gross <laughs> yeah, i don't know maybe it's that's just like one of my like phobias or something <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean the thing is it's not even like it's it's like a percutaneous connector that like goes in it's not like a percutaneous connector that like extrudes out and then you like yeah and then you like clasp something to that it's like you are inserting that in yeah anyways at honka they're still at honka and um that is also where the geisha bot is that they destroyed and so the major does a deep dive into the geisha bot to try and figure out who the hackers and this is done by plugging the cables from the geisha into these same percutaneous ports on the back of the major's neck um and so in this deep dive, the major is able to figure out where the hacker is, which is apparently in the basement of a nightclub. Of course. This is a cyberpunk movie. <laughs> <laughs> All business happens in the back rooms of nightclubs. <laughs> yeah, I, it is actually like, I don't know if you've played Cyberpunk 2077 yet, but like it is shocking how much of that game looks like it could have just been ripped from like the sets of this movie. And to be fair, that's true of a number of movies. <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, like, the new Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or um, Altered Carbon. Like, mm-hmm. like they're very samey in some ways. <laughs> yeah. So the Section 9 team goes to the nightclub, and this... Oh, 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 I forgot to mention. In the anime movie, they have telepathic communication over, like, the net or whatever. Yes, yes, they do. And that is why there's that comment at the beginning of the anime where they're saying there's all this noise in your brain that's that's telepathic right yep and so i mean if we're thinking about the idea that you can do this whole body whole body substitution then idea of just exporting like the speech whatever to the network that's that's a trivial thing in the world of this right Exactly. Though it does cut into my theory of just interacting with the peripheral nerves to control muscles and stuff being easier because now they have a speech implant. <laughs> In the anime movie, they make they basically almost like exclusively make use of the telepathic communication unless they're face to face. Like I think section nine, like or in the live action movie, this is actually the first time that like the telepathic communication is used even like for remote communication. Uh, and I don't, I, I, I actually do not think that the telepathic communication thing lands here in the live action movie. I think it's just goofy and like, it, it feels almost like a voiceover. It's just one of those things that like works in an animation and does not work in the live action for me. Yeah, I, I can see your point. It's not as clear what's happening. Um, I mean, even though they're really explicit about engaging the telepathic communication mode. Um, and I think it is unnecessary in some ways because it's never used in such a way as to like create an interesting plot point or situation because one of the first things that happens is that major follows some people into a back room which is basically a faraday cage and her her communication (laughs) gets cut off yep 
And that doesn't change the behavior of the other people in any way. <laughs> nope. In fact, it just results in a fight and a shootout. And Nick, did this fight scene need to happen? <laughs> was this fight scene necessary? I don't feel like it was necessary. No, because they could have just, instead of skulking around, getting into a fight, and then going downstairs, they could have just gone downstairs. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But yes, a bunch of people die. <laughs> and the club is evacuated or something. Yep. In any case, Major makes her way into the basement where she sees a glitch again, and she sees a vision of somebody of a hooded figure saying, collaborate with Honka and be destroyed before everything explodes because the basement has been booby-trapped. So she throws herself in front of Bato to take the brunt of the blast. Um, Major and Bato are taken into Honka for repairs, and then Bato gets his eye scopes. Hell yeah. Nice. Yep. And there's this amusing, although, again, tonally inconsistent scene where like the major and Bato are bantering which is not something they basically ever do again or have before like major is not a bantery type like no she's like this quiet sulking person yeah scarlett johansson like plays this very robotically because she's literally a robot <laughs> and there's this scene where like um they're bantering with while Bato's getting his eyes replaced and then she's like can you see how many fingers i'm holding up and then she like flips him off it's like where did what movie did this character come from yeah it it is a little bit odd but i i think it does at least serve the purpose of cementing their relationship i mean that is made obvious in other ways but like this kind of shows the like fullness of it i guess sure <laughs> Okay, so, and then as she's getting repaired, Dr. Ule is concerned that um, Major has taken this this exposed deep dive into the geisha because the hacker could have done who knows what to her while they were both in there. Is there anything that happens in between, like, where this ends and when Major goes to find the prostitute, or, or who I assume is a prostitute? I mean, you get some, like, scenes that kind of show aspects of the world. So, for example, um, the CEO of Honka threatens Section 9 for allowing Major to deep dive into the geisha. And it kind of shows Hanka's like influence on Section 9 because the head of Section 9 points out that he answers to the Prime Minister and not Hanka Robotics. But Hanka's like, the CEO basically like shrugs like, no, you don't. <laughs> and uh, heads out. And so I think it that scene, at least for me, is like a very like, you know, in your face, like who's calling the shots here and who feels like they own Major because she's basically seen as a tool or a weapon here. Okay, so the CEO of uh, Honka Robotics, he's named Cutter, and he ugh, he's gross. He's very gross. We'll get into a little bit more later, but he sucks. Major Ghost, like, there's a scene where she's looking at herself in the mirror and, like, touching her face, and then we, like, jump to her basically soliciting a prostitute, and then as she's with the prostitute, they're, like, not doing anything sexual. Major's just, like, looking at her, like, intently, like... <laughs> Asking her how it feels when she touches her face in certain places and stuff. Yeah, it's like real serial killer vibes, dude. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's weird. Well, it's also an odd scene because, I mean, it serves here to make a, like us look at, like really address Major's like cybernetic body mm -hmm. portion. But like Major's questions have not ever been about like whether her body not being human is a problem or whatever like it's all about her like mind and her memories and background so to me the scene was odd for that reason because it seems to point questions that major didn't actually express right yeah it's it's strange 
It's like basically this movie trying to be Blade Runner <laughs> and like contemplative in the way that Blade Runner often is. So the investigation finds that all the dead scientists worked on something called Project 2571 and Dr. Ulay is next. And then that's when we basically get this movie's version of the garbage truck sequence, which is pretty similar, although there are a few differences. Um, there's no market chase where a million bystanders get killed. <laughs> but there is an initial like shootout at the truck that isn't there in the initial movie as Section 9 rescues Dr. Ule. The alley chase and the invisible fight are basically the same. They're even very similar where like they the live action u- movie uses the more muted palette and visuals in comparison to like kind of how they shoot the rest of the movie. Um the last major difference is that like in the anime Major subdues the hacker and just like okay, whatever, but in the live action Major just like kind of goes nuts on this dude and just like starts beating him down even after he's been subdued looking for answers and actually has to be pulled off of the person by Bato. Right. And this is, I guess, because this guy disrespected who Major like kind of treats as her mom, which is Dr. Ule. Yes. Very good point. Definitely strong maternal energy coming from uh, Dr. Ule and her attitudes towards Major. So... We have a similar interrogation scene, and just like the um, in the anime, like the garbage man has been ghost hacked and has had false memories implanted, which you know disturbs Major just as much as it does in the anime, probably more because that's more her focus. Um, but in this, uh, Kuze actually rehacks into the captured garbage man and then speaks directly to the Major and allows Section Nine to trace the signal to lead them into a trap. I. I... I really like this part, actually. Um, like, I found this interrogation scene more interesting um, than the one in the anime. The anime had, like, that humorous picture <laughs> relief or whatever, yeah. which was fun. Uh, but this scene is creepy in this movie. Um, when Kuze hacks through this guy, it, it, it's very, like, disturbing and pretty chilling. Uh, he has a, a cool line in there where he says, they ask him what his name is. And he's like, I've been born more than once. And so I have had more than one name. It's a pretty cool line. <laughs> he definitely speaks in riddles in many ways. So, I mean, obvious trap is obvious. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Section 9 storms Kuze's base. Uh, Major runs ahead of her squad and finds that Kuze is daisy-chaining dozens of human minds to create his own... Ma- I-, I don't understand this. No, it really doesn't make sense. And it's also in complete contrast, effectively, to the anime, which is where he's like connected to the internet and this like mm-hmm. flow of information. And that's the primordial soup he's born from. In this one, he's like trying to create like a little like land party with some humans or something. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like the idea of the net is like, granted, it's actually not emphasized nearly as much as as maybe something like Cyberpunk 2077, but it is still very much like a thing that is emphasized in the anime. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not really all that present in Ghost in the Shell live action, which is much more about enhancement and like memory simulation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... The Major experiences additional glitches as she chases further into Kuze's base. She's ambushed by several people. She's subdued and then knocked cold by her assailants. When she comes to, Kuze reveals himself and reveals that he was a previous iteration of the project that created the Major. And that the reason he's killing all of these people is that he wants to get back what he lost, which is presumably his memories. And I love the sound design of Kuze's voice. It's so good. Yeah. It's creepy. It's good. It's artificial. 
like the off cadence of it, the mm -hmm. like just the the stilted delivery, the it sounds vaguely Scandinavian, like almost like it's like if you gave Microsoft Sam a Scandinavian accent, it's very strange and otherworldly. It's it is fantastic. Yeah, they did a great job. So he does the whole we're not so different you and I speech that, you know, villains always do. And the major does the no, we're not. You're, you kill innocent people. But then she notices a tattoo on his chest that resembles one of her glitches. And she's like, what is this? Who are you? And Kuze actually looks like just as confused in this moment, which is interesting. Yeah, he is confused that she I don't know if he's confused that she seems to know what that is also. Or if he's confused why she finds that symbol um, interesting as well. Like, it's it's strange. But he basically at this point points out that the drugs that they've been giving her are there to suppress her memories. Right? And that he's, he's trying to get them back as well. And so now they are the same. And they have something that bonds them. Yep. Um, so unfortunately, before all of this can get straightened up, uh, Major's friends from Section 9 arrive and Kuze flees as well as the Major. So we cut to Major confronting Dr. Ule at her home and she's like, what the hell, man? Like, what, what's going on? How many were there before me? 98. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's a lot of dead people. That's a lot of human subjects. Clearly, IRBs are not a thing in um, in the world of Ghost in the Shell live action. No, not when you're a megacorp. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Ule admits to the major that, yes, Kuze is telling the truth, that there were many attempts before the major and that major's origin story of a terrorist attack were false memories that they implanted, then that she never knew where the bodies came from. So then we get the scuba diving boat scene, which is similar, but it's, I feel like it's much less philosophical than the anime's boat scene. It's more like interrelational between Bato. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she, first off, she doesn't monologue about the <laughs> trade-offs of like technological enhancement and humanity. Yeah. Live action is definitely much lighter on the monologues. <laughs> yeah. But yep, she does float with the jellyfish in the bay. She doesn't wear a scuba mask, unlike in the anime. Odd note. I mean, Scarlett Johansson, top billing. You got to get her face as much on the as you as you can, right? There we go. And there's also no note about like. I mean, she emphasizes that like you know I can feel something, I can feel fear, but like she does. But they don't go into the idea, the technical idea that like oh she's super heavy because she's like made of metal. <laughs> yeah, not touched upon. Um, what else happens in that boat scene? Uh, they have a beer together or something. No, I think the beer is actually the anime. I think she turns down the beer in the uh, live action. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So we cut to Honka CEO who's like, okay, we need to contain the situation. We need to bring in the major. Um, so the major is detained by Honka security and brought to uh, Cutter and Ule. And this is where Cutter is like, goes full mustache twirling villain. I think he actually does have a monologue, doesn't he? <laughs> um, he basically sees major as property of his corporation she, he doesn't see the major as a person in any way shape or form and just orders ule to download all of the major's data and kill the major ule does not do that <laughs> uh, ule instead frees major and gives her data that will help her find her real identity major escapes the honka facility and cutter kills ule 
it's super sad. It is sad. Um, but then we get to revisit our first topic <laughs> uh, that we talked about at the beginning of the live action movie, which is Scarlett Johansson and her mom. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. So um, in the data that Ule has given Major um, is the identity of a woman who, when Major goes to like visit her, she sees a cat that is strangely familiar that looks like the cat that she saw in some glitches. When she meets the woman there, they both seem strangely familiar to each other. And I do not understand why Scarlett Johansson would seem familiar to the woman. I, yeah, I, I understand what they're going for, but it just doesn't make sense. No, I mean, she says something like the way you look at me uh, or something along those lines. She doesn't even talk about her like personality or attitude. It's like about, you know. Also, it's just like this stranger shows up and like is nice to your cat. And you're like, OK, come in. Let's have tea. Yeah. In a cyberpunk dystopian future, I would not do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It this is like a big just like, OK, we need to figure out how to put these pieces together. OK, whatever. Let's just have this happen and it'll just happen. It's revealed that the woman's daughter disappeared a year ago, which coincides to the purported date of Major's accident, and that this woman's daughter was like an anti-technology activist who just went to go live in like the lawless zone of the city and then disappeared. The implication being Major is this woman's daughter, and this woman's daughter's name being Motoko Kusanagi, the name of the Major from the anime movie. So it all comes full circle. Scarlett Johansson isn't actually white. She's actually Asian. On the inside. <laughs> uh, I mean, at least I guess at least they tried to explain themselves. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. So Honka personnel try to like eliminate the Section 9 officers. And I'm not clear why they do this. It feels like overkill. <laughs> like, yeah, like basically Honka just like goes full murdery. <laughs> I don't know why. But they basically go into this, like, we're just going to destroy everything around this situation. Yep. So they try to kill all the Section 9 officers, including Aramaki, and they fail spectacularly. Every, like, Section 9 officer they try to kill, like, is able to kill all the Honka's personnel attacking them. So, so the memories that Major is starting to get back lead Major back to the lawless zone of the city, where she meets Kuze. And it's at this point that they finally remember who they are. They finally remember their past lives. Um, Kuze was Hideo and Major was Motoko. And they were both um, anti-enhancement activists. They lived in the lawless zone. Their home was raided by police. They were captured and presumably they were given to Honka to be test subjects, which, ugh. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> And then we lead into the spider tank scene, which I like much less because the way this is edited, Cutter is so much in this scene and he in no way needs to be. Yeah, like <laughs> he, there's a whole show about him like putting the spider tank into manual override mode so that it's like whatever, ScarJo versus Cutter and it's unnecessary. I hate it. The editing where we intercut of like the cool spider tank versus Scarlett Johansson, which is uh, it's not a shot for shot remake of, but it is relatively similar and hits a lot of the same tone. So it's pretty good. And the sound design is actually very similar. They don't go for like a big epic like score. It's like slow, like down tempo, almost like somber. And then you just have like this histrionic cutter, like edited in intercut. It's just like, ugh. 
Yeah. I also feel like this scene is shorter. I, I didn't time him, but this scene in the live action feels shorter than the spider tank scene in the anime. And I feel like that to me took away from it a little bit because one of the things about the anime is like the waiting that major has to do, like while she like tries to figure out how to handle this tank situation. And so there's like a lot of kind of like quiet moments interspersed with like this, the rat tat tat like gunfire. And yeah, I don't think you get quite as much of that in this one. Also, Kuze's there for some reason. <laughs> Just like in the middle of all of this. Um, um, I think there's a point where um, like the spider tank shoots a missile. It explodes in the vicinity that leaves Kuze open, right? And then like, oh my God, this, this part's so bad. And then it cuts to Cutter. So in the anime, you have like the arm grabbing the major's body after she's like dismembered, right? Mm-hmm. And then just like ragdolling her. In the live action, they have Kuze being the one grabbed by the arm and being flailed around. And this is before any dismemberment. Right. And that's pretty powerful to like see him just being tossed around by this arm. And then it cuts to freaking Cutter. He, and he says something like, now I'm going to get rid of you, you freak. And it's like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the tonal inconsistency in this in this specific scene is... I, it just doesn't land for me. But it's at that moment when the arm grabs Kuze and is about to like presumably crush his head or something that uh, Motoko is invisible and does the th- does the moist stretching and the moist tearing. <laughs> <laughs> but this time, it works. Yeah, it's successful. She's able to disable the tank, and uh, does Bato arrive then, or I don't know, man. Bato arrives at some point. My memory after she rips that the thing off the tank is gone. Like that is the end scene of the movie to me. <laughs> I think like Kuze like crawls up next to a dismembered Scarlett Johansson and Kuze is like, come with me. And I don't even know what this means, right? Like it made sense in the anime where like where the puppet master is a creation of the net that gains self-awareness, right? And lives on the net. Kuze was what? Where come with him? Where like to his dumb little like person land net? I I don't. Yeah, yeah, the human land network. <laughs> it's way cooler. <laughs> yeah, that does. I don't understand that. So, but most notably, she actually just straight up declines because and says like, "No, I can't leave yet." Uh, and then at that point, Honka snipers destroy Hideo, but then those Honka snipers are shot down by a Section Nine. There's way too much going on in this last scene like it doesn't all work well together and then in a separate scene chief aramaki kills cutter sure great um and then we end with matoko visiting her grave and a closing voiceover affirming her humanity and identity in the and a reprise of the cool tower fall scene right so i kind of just like zoomed through that last like 10 minutes there but i mean that's kind of all that happened <laughs> so one of the recurring segments we have on this um on this podcast is that we do a little rating here of um of what we thought about what we did now okay so nick do you want to rate these movies separately or just as a whole uh let's do them as a whole i kind of like thinking about them as two parts of the same okay even though they're very different. For those that don't know, what we usually do is we rate, they rate them on a one to five scale, one being complete pseudoscience with no basis in reality, um, 
our reference point for that is phrenology, which is the idea that you can identify somebody's cognitive ability and you know, and uh, neurological traits through the shape of someone's skull, like literally the bumps on their head. And a five is full FDA clearance, like uh, you know, like a five ten k or a PMA, you know, full approval. The highest level of scrutiny a medical device or technology can undergo in the United States. So, if we're thinking about Ghost in the Shell as a whole, then we're doing amalgamation of the anime and live action movie. Where do we put this? Man, I always go first on this question. You should go first this time. All right, I will go first then. (laughs) I will put this as a two because the science is out there. I, I mean, listeners may note that we barely talked about science in this uh, in this episode, and that's because we don't really know where to start because it's just so beyond the capabilities of what we can do right now. Sure, but it's a two. But it's not a one. Then why? It's not a one because I mean, I enjoyed the anime. I think it was a solid three point five out of five. The movie, you know, as much as. I want to hate it for many reasons. First of all, being like, how dare these Western pig dogs try to make this glorious Japanese animation into something, you know, that whole thing. You know, like, there's a lot of reasons why I would want to hate it, but I don't actually hate it. I think it's a three out of five. Yeah, those, the quality, the reasonable watchability of the movies and the anime, like, bumps it up from potentially a one to a two. Got it. I think I'd go the same almost for the same reasons too, uh, but to at least elaborate a little bit, I think there's something that we emphasized in both of these movies, which is that I think there's a lot of attention to detail, whether it be in sound design or some of the color choices in the scenes. And like you said, there's some inconsistencies, but even if they're inconsistent, they're impactful because I think they're pretty dramatic. And I found that part fun um, from both of these. So I would uh, give them higher ratings for that reason. And like I said, uh, I could be convinced that whole body body (laughs) cybernetics is somehow easier than (laughs) subcomponents. Even with the telepathic communication? (laughs) No, that that screws up the rating a little bit. (laughs) 1.75. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Okay, so to close out, uh, what are our takeaways here? I think it's really interesting looking at both these movies together because they were spaced apart in time pretty significantly. And they're both, at, I would say, pretty interesting times in terms of technology. Looking at the 95 one, that was like kind of like the advent of the internet, right? And uh, so I think it makes sense that Major and the puppet master in that scene would want to kind of like explore this transcendence of like moving their existence onto the net. Whereas... I think if you maybe those people weren't aware of what the net would become like. (laughs) (laughs) And so when we're like inundated with sites like Twitter and Facebook and Internet rage and whatever else, uh, I think it kind of makes sense that this 2017 movie um, would have somebody actually wanting to turn away from the net and go (laughs) back to being more human. And so I think it kind of makes sense. They're they're reflections of societal attitudes. Okay, so. Social media, bad. Facebook, bad. Bad bird site, bad. (laughs) That's the takeaway. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, that'll do it for this episode of of Narratives, where we talked about both 
Ghost in the Shell movies. Thanks for everyone that stuck around for the full duration of this episode. Uh, we have, we've never done two movies in one episode before, so this was an adventure for everyone involved. Thank you for joining me, Nick, as always. It was my pleasure. And now to return to the net. <laughs> um, speaking of the net, if anyone has any questions or concerns, uh, please feel free to shoot an email to narrativespodcast at gmail.com. With that, uh, we'll see everyone next time. <laughs>